but it is clear that the place is ultimately ruled by ants. In fact, it makes the most sense to think of the jungle as a living tissue of ants with minor infestations of trees, birds, and humans. Some of them are so small that they are, to other ants, as those ants are to people. They prosecute their ant activities in the same physical space, but without interfering, like many signals on different frequencies sharing the same medium. But there are a fair number of ants carrying other ants, and Randy assumed that they are not doing it for altruistic reasons. You know, you and I both used to lead wilderness trips um, and and be camp counselors. And every now and again, there'd be a moment on a wilderness trip like that, where like the the kids that you're with would just like they would have some conversation, or they would put on a little skit, or they'd have a little like sort of kid improv, or they'd play a game, and you're just like, this is the funnest thing that has happened like all summer right now in the state of Maine. In the yeah, <laughs> I, like I yeah, I still remember watching these thirteen year olds have this like sort of Charlie Chaplin level comedic canoe race uh, on the St. Croix River, you know, where like one of them takes off like sitting in the stern, but facing the wrong way as though it was the bow and trying to steer the canoe like from the stern. And, and I remember one, at one point, like one of them was like heckling and was standing in the canoe, sort of like shaking his fist. And little did he know that two of them had sort of circled around behind him and they just T-boned him and knocked him into the water. <laughs> it was Spencer, <laughs> by the way, if you remember Spencer. Spencer. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Shout out to Spike, wherever you are. <laughs> Wherever you are, I know these children are. are they're like now in like, their thirties. You know, they're in their thirties. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Woodchuck, if you're listening, who uh, <laughs> yeah, I might be Facebook friends with Woodchuck. Uh, Facebook friends. You with have some to, of those. Sometimes you gotta you gotta dig through some of those because the algorithm like doesn't doesn't surface them anymore. Yeah, and if you search uh, for Woodchuck, it won't work. <laughs> You, no, you no. <laughs> I, I know what Chuck's actual name, but I, I'm I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna um, maintain his uh, privacy for now. But all right, I have a I have yeah, a this game looks like to go fun. This looks like fun. along with the recap. Yeah. So um, there's something on want... our rundown that says Jesse, do not click on this before starting the recording. Exactly. Um, so uh, you're gonna click on that first link, and I'm gonna click on that second link. Bingo card. Um, Neil Stevenson. Bingo. <laughs> Dense and beautiful. So, <laughs> oh, wow. So Bureaucracy I spent the, sucks. Did you make this? I made this, yes. Oh! I spent this afternoon. I spent this afternoon making this. Listeners, we will post this link. This is awesome. In, uh, because, because this is not a visual medium. How many cards uh, are there? Uh, it makes 30 cards. Okay. But uh, yeah, traveling violence scene. That was the one that I thought of first. Where I was like, my God, in all in the three books we have read, uh, there tends to be in the four books we have read, at some point there tends to be a scene of violence where the protagonists kind of progress over a a area. Mm. Like in the Diamond Age, there's this like traveling gun battle to try to get down to the uh, the river. Right. Uh, there's something very similar in Cryptonomicon when Bobby Shafto is uh, trying to get to the church in Manila. Um, Hero and Raven have that virtual motorcycle sword fight uh, yep. in the metaverse. Yep. 
Um, but yeah, so go ahead and click your fr uh, free space, and uh, we will uh, we'll get into the we'll get into our recap and and play bingo at the same time, Sounds and great. and Sounds hopefully great. not take up the entire episode. Another one you could add uh, <clears throat> condoms. Oh my God! You're right. So many condoms, and we didn't, and we didn't talk about the ejaculation control conspiracy last time too. Which is <laughs> I um, think that one would that one would fall under fun but unnecessary digression. Right. Un, un, unearned, yeah. Okay, Tech Pro sponsor. Okay, great, great. Well, shall we do the plot? Do you wanna um, do you wanna start with uh, Randino? Yeah, for sure. So, um, all right, Randy Waterhouse, uh, and we are picking up. I believe we got through, I believe we Boondock. read through Boondock. So this is a uh, chapter computer right. uh, all the way through the end of the book. <clears throat> so Randy, the big plot arc for Randy, he needs to get the Arethusa intercepts that we learn along the way that his great grandfather has been hanging onto uh at their house in uh eastern central washington for like 50 years um this is when we pick up the action randy is still back in the states where amy and uh her cousins are hanging out with uh, are hanging out with randy um and there is a ah fun but unnecessary digression fun but unnecessary digression. Where uh, the Waterhouse kind of goods are divvied up over the course of a chapter called Origin, uh, where there's this hilarious setup where outside in the freezing cold, they have set up an XY uh, graph um, and family members have to carry items of possible inheritance to a position on the graph that is going to say basically how, how valuable it is to them. I actually don't um, think this is entirely unnecessary, but we can talk about that later. Um, uh, let's see. The, the unnecessary parts that I'm going to highlight, uh, and I'm also going to take a section here to click the women are irrational oh, box yep, yep, on my sure. bingo card. Yep. Women are irrational. Uh, there is a long and annoying um, description of basically how Grandma Waterhouse... Um, thinks that, you know, men simply exist to do things for women right. um, and that, that she doesn't have a clue how a car works or anything like that. Gas simply appears in the car and the, it gets serviced and the tires are taken care of. It is so fucking condescending. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, 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 yeah, that, that, that yep. chapter particularly made me kind of grit my teeth uh, a bit. I, I do think the graphing the family possessions on the giant parking lot Cartesian graph is useful sort of Randy character development and also mm -hmm. Amy Randy courtship stuff, you know, because yes. it's sort of a test of Amy's, you know, interest in Randy, which she's, she's explicitly ambivalent. Um, and Randy is wondering whether this is his crazy, weird, nerdy family is going to drive her away, but they, they don't. Yes. Um, and I think she sort of observes all of this from one of the cars. Um, but she's, she's definitely watching. Um, and the way that Randy gets a hold of this crate, basically ETC punch cards, uh, which we find out very late in the book, uh, Lawrence Waterhouse has engineered a, a devious swap 
where he leaves some fake codes in their place. And these are the real codes. The only, the Arethusa intercepts, uh, which is a code that uh, Rudy von Hackelheber uh, has come up with. Um, and they are crucial because they are going to reveal the location of Golgotha, which is where all the gold that this whole book ostensibly is about finding where that is in the Philippines. Have they seen, have they met Chester already at this point? After that, they go to Chester and he, um, he starts working on um, reading the punch codes and turning them into numbers because that's right you actually need a machine to see what's on these punch codes and so it's and so he um and chester is a sort of bill gates like tech i mean he might be a mere centa millionaire although at one point randy jokes that if he had a thousand what is it a thousand dollars for every order of magnitude no hundred thousand dollars for every order of magnitude that chester's wealth exceeds his he could retire uh (laughs) which suggests that chester is at least a centimillionaire and likely a a billionaire um uh and and yeah he's he's obsessed with old tech which is why he's got the etc uh card readers along along with the uh lockabee pan am uh 747 (laughs) like reassembled in his house which is a enormous industrial building in seattle Uh, would you call chester a tech bro expositor yes i would say so (laughs) ha ha tech bro expositor I'm going to check another box on my bingo card. Um, this card's going to fill up very quickly. It's going to fill up real fast. Yeah, this yeah. this is uh, more. But um, they uh, both Avi and Randy discover that the dentist is probably forming a, mi- a minority shareholder um, lawsuit against Epiphyte Corporation um, because of some due diligence stuff. And basically, the gold that Douglas MacArthur Shafto and Amy Shafto are pulling out of the sunken submarine, every dollar of value that they pull out of the submarine basically makes the minority shareholder lawsuit bigger. And so they really need to figure out a way to get the gold out of um, the submarine without the dentist knowing. And even more importantly, they need to somehow wipe the email server that they keep in the United States that has the location of uh, the submarine in it. So Randy and Avi um, head off to Los Altos. It sort of feels like a Palo Alto. Yeah, there's somewhere on the peninsula south of um, San Francisco. Um, Yeah, I don't remember. It feels like a Palo Alto stand-in. Could be, Um, But uh, there is a fun scene when uh, uh, they are trying, Randy is trying to wipe the, it's very sort of like Mission Impossible. Randy is trying to wipe the contents of the computer remotely. He almost gets it done before some local hackers deploy an electromagnetic pulse, shutting down basically everything around, uh, but not wiping Randy's laptop, nor the Tombstone computer, which is inside the building that they're trying to protect. Yeah, and I think part of what you need to understand here is that that the dentist probably doesn't care about the gold, and the gold is a pretext, and the dentist might not even know that there is a secret agreement between Randy and Doug Shafto to look for the gold and to cut in Epiphyte if they find it. 
Um, he's just looking for a pretext to try to kind of take over the company. Um, So Randy's uh, sort of, you know, hacking where he's trying to wipe the hard drive remotely. Um, he's actually tampering with evidence, um, mm-hmm. which is illegal, and and does and does come back into uh, not to haunt him, but to, but in the other direction. Right. Uh, uh, Amy's dad, Douglas MacArthur Shafto, later is like, I think that some of the things that you might have been doing were dangerous and and maybe illegal and like really sort of wins over doug MacArthur shafto i i can't, uh, I can't remember that. if he uses the phrase you displayed some adaptability there but he might as well have exactly yeah he's impressed um uh randy heads back to the philippines uh where he is framed as a drug trafficker uh somebody has slipped uh some heroin into his bags he gets arrested um, he gets put in jail, but he is also supplied with his laptop. Um, and there's a very funny scene where he basically figures out that the dentist or whomever is responsible for putting him in jail has set up a Van Eck freaking device inside a filing cabinet that is locked inside his jail cell. And his laptop has to be used on top of the filing cabinet. Um, and Randy comes up with an ingenious, uh, and very well described, ploy where he can manipulate the Arathusa intercepts without ever displaying them on his screen. Um, and so he is able to figure out the location of Golgotha where all of the gold is, um, without ever showing it off to whoever is spying on him. He is visited in jail by a very old Enoch root, um, who, uh, goes by who we discover is the person who's been emailing Randy for a while shows Randy a very cool encryption scheme that involves, uh, uh, 54 playing cards. So a full deck plus two jokers. Um, he is eventually released from jail. We know the location of Golgotha. Um, and, uh, event by the end of the book, Randy and everybody else, uh, Doug, Amy, Jackie Wu, John Gwynn, um, Enoch, Enoch, and is anybody else with them on I that walk? It. I think that's it because yeah, they, they, uh, Avi and um, some of the other Epiphyte people are locked out because of uh, immigration issues, probably orchestrated uh, right. by this Chinese guy, Wing, who we'll hear about later. But they are attacked in the gulch by uh, crazed Andrew Loeb, um, who hates Randy and wants nothing so more as to uh, sort of do away with him. Randy uh, actually doesn't end up doing away with uh, with Andrew. Uh, he is killed by a combination of Amy and Enoch, but not before shooting Amy <laughs> through the leg with a large bow and arrow. Um, but Randy does display, uh, adaptability and, um, definitely dedication, uh, in trying to save Amy. Um, and his final, his final act is to come up with a scheme to get the gold out of Golgotha by what I think is putting enough fuel oil explosives down Golgotha so that the gold erupts out of it and cools into a river of gold, which is the final image of the book. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't include, um, the, the final release of, uh, Randy's prostate in the plot recap. Oh my uh, God. (laughs) That's a chance to, uh, click unearned romantic connection on your bingo card. Unearned romantic connection. 
Randy does uh, consummate his attraction uh, to Amy. They have sex in a car, uh, and Randy has been abstaining for so long that he has a sort of Hemingway-esque super orgasm in the car that lasts minutes. Sort of played for comedy. Um, Yeah, exactly. I just want to also just say, like, Randy is, he's he's not particularly heroic in the gulch, but he is self-sacrificing and puts his Mm -hmm. body in front of Amy and is showing dedication to her uh but he his you you said this but just to highlight his peak hero moment is in the jail when he yep. is able to get the location of Golgotha and hide it from whoever is spying on him in that moment and it's a wonderful chapter it's it's and it's randy at his very best um yeah but shall i shall i take on bobby um, yes, I'm looking for any chance here to, you know what, I'm going to click the Linux rules box on, my, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> on sure. my, my bingo card. Linux rules. One thing we did talk about last time was that we, we really could boil down the middle of this book to like, there's gold, let's go get it. Yeah. I, I think we just proved it, but holy crap, the last half of this book is very plot dense. <laughs> It's, it's dense. I also basically, maybe not right away, but by the time we got to raid, like the raid, and that's also the, those chapters are being interspersed with Goto Dengo building the escape machine, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about in a moment. Um, I also felt like it really picked up and got good again yeah. somewhere in the last third of the book. But anyway, we can get more into that. Um, so Bobby Shafto has sort of by hooker, Crook made his way uh, back to the South Pacific. Um, he's basically like been he's he's gotten back, gone back home, been debriefed, and because he knows all this stuff about Detachment Twenty Seven O Two and German subs, they basically tell him you can't go into any theater mm-hmm. of war again. So he kind of sneaks away and uses his Marine connections and his displays some adaptability and gets himself uh, to New Guinea. Um, basically, he wants to get sent to the Philippines so he can reunite with the love of his life, Glory, and he's starting to suspect that he might have a child, um, and he figures that General Douglas MacArthur is the man to get him there. He kind of meets one of MacArthur's underlings, impresses that man enough that it, it, this is kind of implied um, that that he, he, he gets kind of a reference, and he gets taken uh, to a yeah, very amusing chapter uh, to meet Douglas MacArthur uh, where he, when he arrives, he thinks it's not actually Douglas MacArthur, but a mannequin that the army has set up as a decoy on this mansion because it's in a terribly, a tactically terrible place. Like it's in a very obvious place that would be easy to be attacked. Turns out to actually be MacArthur, and sure enough, as they're meeting, they come under attack uh, from two or three uh, Japanese airplanes. MacArthur acts as though they're basically not there. Uh, an unexploded AA shell lands nearby, and he picks it up and orders Shafto to drive him down to the battery so they can give the shell back to his AA guys and give them a lecture about shooting better. Uh, But basically, uh, MacArthur hires Shafto to go to the Philippines uh, and sort of try to whip up enthusiasm among the Filipinos and also help their insurrection against the Japanese. Uh, So Bobby does that for a little bit. Um, and he's working with this ethnic group that they refer to as Hux. I don't remember the full name. He has a very uh, weird encounter with Glory, uh, who he's 
heard about, um, and there's there are these weird cryptic hints that she's delivering messages, but she's a nurse now, and so, and he's like, well, why do you know why, why don't the Japanese stop her and like try to rape her and 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 you know somebody says, oh, they wouldn't do that, and he doesn't really understand why, and he meets up with her, and her face is mostly gone because she now has leprosy and her fingers are missing. Um, and apparently she got it when she was attending. Uh, she was serving as a nurse and got the disease. And apparently Bobby passes out and faints and doesn't talk with her at all. And then he... uh, he's he's whacked on the head by his uh, by his oh, boat pilot. Oh, because he starts screaming. He starts screaming and yeah. he is knocked out by his boat pilot. Um, quick question. Uh, do we ever see or hear from Glory again in any way? No, oh. no. And it raises a lot of weird questions for me about Douglas MacArthur Shafto's childhood um, and why Doug Shafto seems to be culturally an American Shafto, even though, well, I don't want to spoil too far ahead. Uh, yeah, it's a, there's, it's a bit weird. It's a bit unexplained. Basically, and we can talk about this more uh, but it's sort of, I think we're meant to understand that Bobby's dreams of reuniting with Glory are no longer viable because she's been disfigured by this disease, which is yeah weird. And, and I don't, I mean, and not great and not great. Um, yeah. but there's no time to think about that because he's on a raid and they're going to, uh, invade, um, Manila, I think, or, or is it a yep. different city? They're going to invade Manila uh, and he thinks he's probably going to die in this raid, and he thinks he's just kind of softening it up for MacArthur, but it turns out this raid is happening at the same time as MacArthur is also raiding Manila, and there's some, you know, action and some violence and stuff like that, and through a series of coincidences, Bobby finds ah, himself... Ah, can, we, can we check coincidence on the bingo card? Coincidence. <laughs> yes, uh, we certainly can. Um <laughs> And I don't have bingo yet, but I'm close. No. <laughs> um, uh, he finds himself face to face with Goto Dengo, uh, whose plot we'll get to in a second. And we'll explain how Goto got to be in to this place. Um, Goto is having kind of a mental moral breakdown and Bobby kind of talks him out of it. And then in another coincidence, suddenly Douglas MacArthur is there Um hanging out at this and they're at a baseball field which i actually think is wonderful and 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 there's a battle going on and um bobby introduces goto dengo to uh douglas macarthur um who immediately takes a liking to him because uh uh goto converts to christianity and apparently renounces the japanese empire on the spot um and then uh bobby um is sort of at loose ends and uh, MacArthur says you've been very bad you were supposed to be helping me but you kind of like went out of touch for a while which isn't really true or fair um, he, 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 Bobby has actually been doing everything that MacArthur asked him to do so I thought that was a little bit messed up but sends him on this mission which turns out to be basically a suicide mission uh, to parachute onto this fortress oh, but before that I do want because we do get the meeting with his son Oh, that's right. That is very important. Yeah, we should we so, should touch right, on that. This right. whole this whole raid with so, MacArthur is trying to locate some women and children that are holed up in a church. Traveling violence scene. Right. They fight their way to a place where a lot of women have been imprisoned, including I forget Glory's family. The Altamiras is the name yep. of the family, and they sort of fight their way 
to them, and he is reunited with his son and some of the other Altamiras, including some some kids he remembers who are now sort of like teenagers, you know, from when he was there. And he meets his son and carries him to the steps of, uh, is it a temple or is it a church? I don't remember exactly. I think exactly. it's a church. Right, St. Saint, Saint Augustine. And it's yeah. this church that was built there over hundreds of years and sort of imparts this lesson uh, to this, I guess, two-year-old kid, like who, who uh, we later learned that Doug barely remembers this, but has a sort of vague memory of this. Um, anything else you want to say about that before the, the no, mission? No, but I do think, yeah, that was, that's, uh, we do need to know that one. And then basically, and this bothers me a little bit, we can talk more about it, but I think essentially for reasons of needing nobody to know about the conspiracy or the gold so that Randy can be the big hero of this book, Bobby has to die. Uh, so he gets sent on a mission where he dies. Um, and it's, he gets basically he parachutes onto this fortress, but they didn't account for all the antennas sticking out of the fortress. So he gets impaled by these antennas um, and maybe the wound is mortal. Um, and his job is to fill similarly uh, to Golgotha in the, the present, fills the fortress with a bunch of oil and lights it on fire. And at the last minute decides to commit suicide and jumps into the fortress and everything goes up in smoke. Uh, yeah. And that's the end of Bobby Shafto. Um, I'm going to click the plot is greater than character development box on my bingo card. Plot is greater than character development. The Or the expediencies of plot trump the necessities of character development. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll get back around to other people who have to die unnecessarily in the closing pages of the book. Yeah. As uh, as various other characters are just summarily, summar, summarily done away with. Um, in order to, as you say, make Randy be the um, the hero. In my opinion, maybe some of those characters just didn't need to exist in the first place. Um, yep. Did you listen to uh, Did you listen to this book? I I did, and then went through and re- went back and read passages to. I do have to say the the re- the reader's version of uh, of of General General MacArthur is wonderful yeah shafto (laughs) go to manila for me shafto announce that i am coming (laughs) shafto i need you to start my jeep right away i have a bone to pick with my triple a (laughs) boys yeah i do i mean like we'll talk we might talk about this more but but those macarthur is some of my like you're right they are these weird like comic chapters that sort of yep. spin out and uh i just i just adore him and like they definitely push the plausibility um horizon but um a really yeah. fun invention yeah i mean i suspect that he's drawing from biographical details like i think i may have seen a photo of macarthur you know like on his new Guinea sort of headquarters wearing a pink kimono, smoking his pipe, like looking out binoculars or something. I think I may have seen that photo because he does Marvelous. say there were two photographers there during that scene too. So uh, do you want to, do you want to give us go to Dengo's? Yeah. Plot? Yeah. I'm going to do, I'm going to do. Go-to-dengo. I would say this was my favorite plot. Uh, Mine too. My God. Like this is, this, this is like, uh, it's, it's clear. It's direct. It's human. It's sad. Um, it's touching, it's poignant, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of this brilliant, um, distillation 
of figuring out how to save as many people as possible while also kind of tricking his superiors. Um, it's about a realization that the way that his culture and the, the, the army that he's fighting for are, are really going about it the wrong way. Um, I loved Gododango sections. I love the character he becomes later. Uh, but this whole, his whole arc, um, he's been charged with creating the, um, basically the vault that will hide all of the Japanese war gold and treasure. Um, and he realizes during the creation of Golgotha that everyone who works on it is going to be killed because th those secrets can't get out. Um, and he begins to devise a plan with a few other workers that he handpicks. One of them, a Chinese man named Wing, um, uh, who is going to become important later. But all of Gododengo's sections uh, for a big chunk of this is about drilling different holes and coming and engineering a solution that will allow him and uh, the, a small number of men to escape. Um, those sections where they do actually escape Golgotha through a series of swimming through dark, flooded uh, caverns with these little air bubbles that they have engineered, I, I think is some of the more harrowing sections of the book. Yeah, um, wonderful. Oh, so wonderful, gripping, terrifying. One of them gets lost and doesn't show up and they're like, Oh, he's, he's dying right now. Um, yeah. and it's just really, it's really hard. Um, and, and Godo Dango's development as a character in this book, I think is, I think is the most <clears throat> kind of literary character development in the book. Um, he's the only character for which I actually kind of track time effectively. There's a lot of like during Randy's arc, it's like two years ago, he never would have expected. And I'm like, two years have passed. Like that doesn't seem weird. It all seems to kind of take place in this undescribed present, but go to Dengo. You really get a sense that the war is moving on. The war is ending. There's a hurry up. Um, he escapes and, uh, and sort of rejoins, uh, the Japanese military ends up in Manila where through again, a very, an extremely large coincidence bumps into Bobby Shafto on that battlefield. Um, Bobby recognizes him and composes a haiku on the spot so that Godo will understand that it's Bobby Shafto. They reunite. Goto converts to Christianity, is made friends with Douglas MacArthur, and then is like his aide for a long time, uh, which also is really cool. Yeah. Um, and then and then founds a large Japanese uh, engineering company um, that becomes the company that Epiphyte and Randy and Avi are going to use to uh, dig up Golgotha uh, later on in the book. Um, I think that's Goto Dengo's arc. Yeah, and there's and there's a really interesting scene where Randy and Avi meet the roughly eighty or seventy year old Godo uh, Dengo. That's an interesting moment. I, I'm gonna bring that up later when we okay. when we do our discussion. Um, 
So Lawrence, you know, sort of mini plot. I mean, at the beginning of this section, you alluded to this last time, but it's really in this section where we learn that he has invented some kind of computing machine with random access memory, RAM. (laughs) Um, And it's a pretty funny chapter uh, involving the elder Comstock, who is Lawrence's boss. And uh, it's it's played for a lot of comedy, but basically the same time that Alan Turing is making a similar machine in England and there's some other people doing things, um, uh, uh, Lawrence Pritchard Waterhouse is doing that. He also can have, through this sort of very bizarre encryption technology, is able to have um, telephone conversations with Alan Turing. So they're checking in and we realize that the code that they had been talking about many, many, many chapters ago, is a code that uh, Rudy von Hackelberger, uh, or whatever, Hackenhaber. Hackelhaber. Rudy von Hackenhaber. Rudy von Hackelhaber. Has has developed basically so that he and the other conspiracy of people trying to steal the gold or find the gold or whatever it is they're trying to do with the gold can talk to one another. Um, He has a breakthrough uh, working on that code he also by the way while we're at it like cracks one of the last japanese codes and that helps us win the war in the pacific but that's almost like an aside yeah yeah he stay he like does like 32 hours of work and then is sort of and i think he's operating out of brisbane um he then breaks rudy's code and figures out what the conspiracy is up to and then in a really bizarre scene sort of stalks them through the jungle uh, and has this kind of like final confrontation with Rudy where Rudy's like, okay, I guess you're going to turn us in. And he's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that, whatever. Um, And they're like, oh, well, do you want some of the gold? And he's like, nah, I think I can just going to go with Mary Skimithid, who's now my wife. And I've got, you know, an appointment in some wasteland part of Washington where they're building a university and I'm going to go teach computer science there. I'll be fine. And so they sort of have a, um, a goodbye. And then as sort of the last significant plotting thing that he does, he covers the tracks of the conspiracy by sw- swapping out the intercepts of Arethusa, Rudy's codes, and uh, swaps them out using a random number generator with Comstock as the key to generate that number. This is a, he is trolling Comstock hardcore. And then apparently Comstock, we learn from Enoch Root in a much earlier chapter. So you have to, you kind of have to retcon this all together. Um, That's not quite the right word. Uh, Had... Dozens of people at the NSA working, trying to decrypt this so that he would learn where the gold was. And of course, it was a fool's errand. Um, And this is what gets him drummed out of the NSA eventually, because somebody figures out that the uh, Arethusa intercepts were not actual real code, but a random number generated with the the keyword Comstock. Uh, And that (laughs) is all uh, Lawrence is doing. Um, And that's, I think, basically the end of, uh, you know, we understand that Lawrence goes to Washington and raises a family. Uh, And also, like Bobby Shafto, so that Randy can be the hero, Lawrence has to die, so that the secret of Golgotha's location is lost more or less as far as we understand so that randy can have his heroic moment of rediscovering that and yeah so we got to kill off rudy we got to kill off uh gunter um all all the other members of the conspiracy except for enoch like enoch gets away 
Enoch gets away, um, and Goto also knows where the gold is, um, yep. he, and so does Wing, as we later learn, or at least close enough. I, it's never really clear to me if Wing knows where it is or not. One assumes it's Wing who has Randy framed and imprisoned, yep. but yes, basically, in order for Randy to be the hero and for the plot in the 90s to make any sense, all the conspirators either have to die or... Mm-hmm. I do think Gunter maybe like swims to an island and just like lives out his days on uh, a tropical island. No, it's a little the bit line, unclear. The, the line that says his knees begin to hurt, um, oh. there's no way he survives 75 meters from oh, oh. like he's so gonna he, get so yeah. he dies of the bends I, I guess he would die of the bends yeah i was like there's no way a u-boat captain doesn't know about that like he knows enough about pressurized air that if rudy lights a match in that place where he's trapped that it'll explode but he doesn't know about the bends like that seems odd it seems odd yeah i, I honestly like i just don't think we need rudy and bischoff at all i mean we sort of said it last time I kind of feel like with the 300 pages of Detachment 2702, like in the Milch Cow and Bobby Shafto and Enoch Root getting interrogated and then they go to Sweden, like, you don't need that. The only purpose of that is to get the submarine and the the little bit of gold, not the big gold, but the right. little gold into the harbor so that... You know, the Shaftos, Doug and Amy, can find it, which drives the plot forward and gives them the seed money for their big, you know, Mm -hmm. gold expedition. But that could just be another German sub that sunk there with some gold. Like, And my, I mean, I don't know, my best theory is that Stevenson wanted to write an epic novel with submarines. and, And he was just like... Uh, yeah, how do we get some submarines in there? I want some Germans. <laughs> I want some submarines. I know, like, and and he can't. I mean, he he does more or less tie all the ends together. Right. And some of my least favorite moments are the moments where something needs to happen just to make the submarine plot make sense. Yep. You know, so or just like. The fact that like Bischoff is supposed to be like the greatest sub captain ever, and then as soon as he surfaces, he's immediately blown up, sinking. Right, just just because Rudy told Bobby Shafto about the rocket subs that Bobby could trade to the government to basically get him back which, in. Which Rudy could have told to Gunter, or but also like even knowing that, you still all that means is that you know the the, the, the distance. distance. It doesn't mean you right. know exactly where he would have come up. I just don't quite buy it. And um, and also, like, why are we spending time with these, like, quote-unquote good Nazis anyway? Like, I mean, they're not they're not super well-developed as, as... I mean, Rudy's kind of a fun character, but, like, I just don't need Gunter's it. fun. But, yeah, it feels like we're, we're in, like, a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical with these, like, like wise-cracking, like, yeah. ironic, like, Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Are, it's like springtime you know. for Hitler plus, like, Ziegfeld's Follies, you know? Yeah, sort exactly. Of like, You're like, oh, Gunther, you wonder... what, did you have scurvy now? Are your teeth falling out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, we need to get you some more limes. We need some uh, more but limes. But in the meantime, I'll be up on the conning tower sunning myself. Give me my fan. I, yeah. Um, <laughs> Like, yeah, there's, it's just absurd. Like, yeah, there is, there is, and I, I, yeah, totally same thing. Like, yeah, let's get into, I I think we've, I mean, you know, we're all kind of already in it. Well, I mean, we alluded to this, but let me just ask you, like, how do you feel about Shafto's death? Bad. I don't understand. Um, 
either, like you said, like, yeah, he seems to get pretty messed up by the antenna and he's broken his leg badly. Um, we have seen Bobby Shafto survive <laughs> far worse. And then I'm kind of like, well, does he just does is the building just going to blow up because it's been filled with 10,000 gallons of fuel oil and he's tossed a white phosphorus grenade in it? Like, so does he know that it's going to blow up anyway? But then was it a suicide mission from the start? That seems really callous of MacArthur. Um, I felt really frustrated with it. Um, Bobby Shafto is another really fun character. Yeah. And uh, and I feel I feel, again, cheated by this wrapping up of loose ends in a really like, let's just hurry it up and kill. Let's just hurry it up and kill these people. Glory's a leper. Isn't that ironic? The, the thing he yeah. was looking forward to for the last 700 pages. Oh, look, her face fell off. I guess he doesn't get to reunite, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess he doesn't care anymore because she's not pretty. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, as I was reading it, I was like, really? Like, this is how we're going out? This this feels, there, there's moments in this book when it shifts from novel to comic book. Yeah. And we're just in a, it's jarring. Um, and it, it, it's frustrating, uh, because all of a sudden this like plot rules instead of character. Totally agree. And I mean, it is disappointing that maybe Bobby Shafto is just like, I can't handle glory being a leper. Uh, so I guess we're done. This character would still want to be there for his son as uh, all the character development that we have gotten up to this point would say, well, he's, yes. st he's still going to take care of his son and he's still going to help out the Altamiras. It is, it is a moment that just breaks character wide open. Uh, it's a stupid death. doesn't make any sense. And there is some implication that it was Waterhouse's idea too and that Waterhouse is a nerd. So he didn't think about the antenna. Like that nerd forgot about... Tactically moron, he forgot about it. just doesn't make any sense. And yeah. as far as I can tell, it's just there because the plot of the 90s wouldn't make sense if Bobby Shafto was still alive because Bobby knew about the conspiracy and knew where the gold was. And Randy has to rediscover all like, that. Why? There were other ways of solving that problem. Right. Why doesn't Bobby Shafto die 25 years later in having effectively raised his son who, like, as you said, like probably grows up in weird circumstances, but turns out like a red blooded American ethnic determinism. Um, he's, he's like a, he's like a, a, a blue carbon copy of Bobby Shafto. Like, and it's like, how yeah. does he, how does he have so much of his dad's culture? If his dad was dead all this time yeah. too. I mean, we understand yeah. that the Shaftos are a tight knit bunch, but it's, it's, it's like, there's a missing part of his biography too, because he's half Filipino. Um, mm -hmm. And he's raised by Filipinos. Why isn't he culturally Filipino? Why isn't Amy culturally Filipino? Why does Amy talk with a, Tennessee accent. Uh, and, and maybe <laughs> yeah, totally. maybe there's a reason for that. Uh, like maybe, but uh, yeah, it's it's sloppy. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that there's there's a bunch of that in, there's a bunch of that in the last third of this book. It is better yeah. than the middle third of the book. Um, and, but it's, it's not, but boy, like, w w you know, I would take the trade 
of a book that was 300 pages shorter with a lot of tightening in different places. There, there are digressions that I just don't care about Randy's wisdom teeth. That was a long digression. Um, and I really wish that maybe a little less effort had been put into those places and a little more effort into making the last third of the book hang together plausibly. I suspect there are some readers out there, and I'm thinking of a friend of mine who probably love the parts that we don't like, um, like the submarine plot. The, 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 this book is sort of written to appeal to like the World War II nerd who just loves the idea of kind of imagining Bischoff and Rudy in a rocket sub. It's it gets at what I don't like about the new any Star Wars made since 1983, which is that rather than the point being telling a really good story, the point is like let's let's explore this world a little bit, you know, and yeah. and I it, uh, objectively you know, it's not to say that I'm right. I'm essentially describing fandom, right? Yeah. Like, you know, that there are people who just kind of want to live in this world that Neil Stevenson created, and they just they just enjoy that sort of thing. They're not wrong, but that's that's not what I want in a novel. Yeah. You know, I want a really good, tight story. And I think that's what Stevenson wants, too. Yeah, I like, mean, like, being a maximalist is great, but, like, being a maximalist doesn't mean that you leave everything in. Um, you know, we talk a lot about David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace was a maximalist. A, it had a hardcore editor that while he was alive, David Foster Wallace like was like, these books would be one third the books they are without my editor. Yeah. And really, and they and and reading their their letters and their their emails back and forth to each other is pretty remarkable and and like really displays a positive editorial relationship. I think you're right. I don't think that exists here. There's so much that could come out. I'm just remembering, I've read some of those letters and the phrase that David Foster Wallace uses when he disagrees with the editor is, my teeth are bared. Or, <laughs> you, I'm afraid my teeth are bared at this moment. Or, yeah, my teeth are bared. My teeth are slightly bared at this. It's <laughs> a recollection. Uh, you have an, an observation about echoes. Yeah, I think there are some really lovely echoes in this book. And also, like, there, there's stuff in here that you you realize like you you come across an illusion or a moment that like is clearly recalling some other work in the canon of literature um and i kind of get down to it down below as well but like sometimes because yeah i think um the star wars the star wars analogy is a good one i also think the marvel movies are a good one are a good Mm -hmm. analogy here you know like like overblown movies and stuff like that um that yeah are a lot about fan service but there are there are a lot of moments where you're like okay no this he really does care about detail and i think that's when he's at his best Mm. um and you know like like we've talked about his sort of dense and beautiful prose dense and beautiful prose was when he is describing the natural world or the way that math and the ma- the natural world interact with each other. By the way, you, you just gave me a bingo saying dense and beautiful. I now have, I now have Stevenson bingo with dense and beautiful. Uh, I was close. I needed math embodied. 
um, is what I is what I needed. But uh, there you go. Yeah, you have won the Neil Stevenson bingo game. Um, we should. Uh, this well, is a we should brilliant take... marketing idea for upper middle brow <laughs> Neil Stevenson Good. bingo. Um, I don't know quite <laughs> well, we'll, how we'll, we'll, we're going to uh, leverage it, but it's a brilliant <laughs> idea. I know it's a little insulting at the moment. It's not all. There's more negative than positive, but. Um, um, oh, I didn't click sinking boat when we talked about the uh, the sinking submarine. Yep. Um, you mentioned character development, and it, it is, I think, we, we're, we're wrapping up early Stevenson. And I would say, apart from occasional clumsy plotting, apart from trying to write too many books in one book, yeah, character development is very hit and miss. Uh, yeah. so, sometimes he nails it. And you and I both agreed that Godo Dengo has really wonderful character development although there's one moment i want to ask about um where i'm not i'm not sure my question is i will say that i completely buy randy falling in love with amy i understand why he's attracted to amy i understand how the ways in which amy is different from charlene also like amy's just a badass in a dish so like i any red-blooded man might <laughs> fall in love with amy shafto as described at least the way she's described by neil stevenson do you buy amy eventually after a certain amount of ambivalence and testing and probing uh a first being sort of charmed by and then later in fact falling in love with randy waterhouse um, I would if there had been something before she follows him to the U.S. Mm. Because that is really where the the relationship deepens. But we see nothing mm. about their interaction or attraction or spark in, in any real concerted developed they're, they're way. They're flirting on the boat a little, right? They, it, like, a little bit, but yeah. but it's flirting where like... He would really like the flirting to continue, and she's sort of like, uh. Hmm. Um, and then it just it seems to shift into fast forward, and it really reminds me of Hero's relationship with Juanita, hmm. um, where it, like just kind of out of nowhere, yeah, he follows Juanita to the raft and 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 works to save her, but it doesn't seem to make sense that they're going to have a you know stable romantic relationship after that and i feel the same way about amy and randy i mm. just don't buy i just don't buy it. it it there wasn't enough work done ahead of time mm. and unfortunately it strikes me as like like we just we just need a love interest so let's like let's put this woman in here and we're not really going to develop her too much she is a badass, um, but she doesn't get too much else to do, though there are some really nice sections when they are in the U.S. together that I really do like. And, and I wish I had more of those earlier. Um, but yeah, that, that's the reason that I've got the unearned romantic attraction in the bingo card. Yeah, I think that's fair enough, because I actually do think like once it gets to the U.S., if you accept what I think Stevenson wants us to accept, uh, which is that they have a spark and she sort of thinks of him as unlike anybody she's met in the Philippines up to this point and kind of a cute bumbling nerd. He's weird, um, but he's kind of interesting in a way and he's sort of adventurous. He's like, you know, developing this business. Um, 
so so the moment we know that she really does like him, of course, is when she shows up in the U.S. and she's pissed because she thinks that he's going back to Charlene. And like you, you only do. And I, I agree that there, I think if you if you start there and you had had the development up to that point mm-hmm. such that you bought that. Then I think after that, it does kind of work, because I think what we're meant to understand is she likes him, she thinks he's cute, but she's not sure that he is passionate enough for her. And and what does happen with Randy is he becomes more passionate, more bold, and more of a risk taker, more daring. And yeah. then and even, you know, when he's doing the hacking in the jail cell and also the tampering with the evidence, you know, he's taking action he is becoming more of the sort of person that we suspect Amy would like him to be. So it's like, it's mm-hmm. almost like the romance needs three legs and Stevenson gave us two and they're the last yeah. two. Yeah. is is missing. It's yep. just not there. It's, it's any nerd's dream of what would happen yeah. if he sort of fucked off to the Philippines and like, it just, it reads a little bit too much like a, like a high school. And movie. how Randy got his groove back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Divorces his academic wife, heads off to the Philippines, meets a beautiful diver, impresses her yep. with his coding ability. <laughs> <laughs> um, so coincidences. How much is too much in this book? Mm. I, the, 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 the moment when Bobby bumps into Godo Dango in the middle of a firefight, and then moments later, General Douglas MacArthur. Just I, It was at that point where I was like, God damn it, man. Like, this is beyond the pale of of believable. You know, it's interesting. It, the, the coincidence is not what bothered me at that particular moment. And I don't, I don't know if it's just because I become a nerd to them with Stevenson, where it's <laughs> like there are, on the planet Earth, where there are something like four, five, six million people, depending on the year that we're talking about, they're really only about 22 people. And so, of course, they're going to bump into each other. And also, all of their descendants are going to bump into are each other. Are going to bump into each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, like that, that's, that's sort of part of the, the premise. I think that it, it maybe would have worked for me. The thing that spoiled it was I thought Stevenson really brought us wonderfully, beautifully to the brink with Godo Dengo's moral nervous breakdown in that Mm -hmm. moment when he meets Bobby. And I actually think Bobby was, their relationship is foreshadowed enough that Goto would have that breakdown in front of Bobby. And even sort of drawing the pistol and pointing it at him for a moment, sort of being like, okay, maybe I still am a Japanese soldier and I need to kill this American, but not really being able to do that. And then maybe he's going to kill himself. Like that all worked. And then it's just like, MacArthur's there and they're kind of like nervous and Doug or Bobby has to think fast. So he's like, my, there's my friend go to Dango and he wants to convert to Christianity, sir. <laughs> you know, and then MacArthur's crying and it's like, this yeah. young man is proves that Japanese men can change. And then, and, and I understand why he plot wise, he needs to be introduced to, to, we need Goto Dango to become prosperous and successful and create an engineering firm. And what better way for him to do that in post-war Japan than to become a kind of protege of Douglas MacArthur. But just the moment of, well, Goto Dango even says, if I was a Christian, I could be reborn. And Bobby's like, well, hell, we can make you a Christian. Godo Dengo does not seem to have accepted that idea. Mm-hmm. 
it, it seems like I mean, the way it's written, it's sort of written for comedy where they're like, oh, Goto and Bobby are in trouble with the general. Better come up with an excuse. I know. It didn't necessarily feel like a real conversion. And it also, mm-hmm. it, it bothered me. The politics of it bothered me in a way that, mm-hmm. okay, I certainly understand that the Japanese empire and the Japanese army behaved very, very badly and did have a corrupt an evil culture during that period. And Goto, at his heart, is not a corrupt and evil person. He has spent the entire book coming to terms with that, and he's having a moral breakdown. The solution to that is not to convert to Christianity. Yeah. You know, that's that, I, I it just, and the idea that the problem with the Japanese warrior culture was godlessness, and if only they were to become Christians, everything would have been better. And, you know, I think Neil Stevenson is too smart to really believe that, and there's even that discussion Godo Dango has with Enoch Root about the church, which I yep. think is Stevenson putting in, like, look, I get that Christians aren't always good. <laughs> I understand that, so don't come at me, y'all. But, um, <laughs> you know, I really like the Godo Dango plot, and he became my favorite character, and I think the best character development and the best character transformation we saw, and then the ending was not stuck, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, and it's this. This is going to echo what I've said earlier, but it just it feels at a certain point that we are experiencing the we're experiencing the architecture rather than a novel. Hmm. Like I, you know, and this is a personal taste thing. Like I read novels mostly to be transported emotionally. Right. That's what I. That's what I like. You know the the moments of books that I find truly important. Yeah, we talked about this in one of the Ripley episodes, but that heartbreaking moment in the Chekhov story in the cart where she recognizes for the briefest of moments, like someone who looks like her mother on a train and is whisked back for just a millisecond to a time when she was happier and then it's taken away again is, is the kind of thing that I go to literature for is these like large sweeps of emotion um, that you get to kind of like ride shotgun on. Um, that's why I like novels. That's why I like going to plays. That's why I love poetry. At a certain point, this feels like a really, uh, a, a, a not even really well executed, an executed kind of high wire trapeze act. Mm. And after eight or 900 pages of it, I'm like, okay, I get it, man. You can write, you can write an intricate plot, but you can't really stick the landing like you just said. And it's frustrating because he's so talented, you know. Oh, my God. I want to take a break from Stevenson with Upper Middle Brow. But I, I do think, I don't, I don't ever, I don't think I ever want to read the Baroque cycle again. I don't know if you, if you read that or not. I haven't, but I don't think I'm going he to. He spent something like 10 years on that. And I think he emerged from that. And I think he emerged a much greater writer. And I, th- I think... There's still there's still some ham-handed moments and things like that, but I think that certainly the character development part improved significantly mm-hmm. and fascinatingly. It's I kind of feel like with a little more work and better editing, this could have been a really great rollicking adventure story with those literary moments, and it it, yeah. it doesn't quite achieve that. I think you're right. Yeah. Was, was that the next piece that you've got here about uh, ecumenical oh, uh, conservatism? Yeah, that was, that was I guess, the other sort of, like, just thing that's... It's, it's one of the themes of this novel and also the Diamond Age, I think. Um, and it's, it's kind of... Um, 
it's something you see in the books enough that I think that Stevenson either believes or at least at the time of the writing believed this. And I think this is part of Godot's accepting Christianity, too, and how Stevenson thinks about it. David Brooks, the the sort of now moderate conservative writer, mm-hmm. once you would have said firmly conservative, but in today's huh. sort of like Republican era, he's now sort of a moderate conservative uh, wrote a book recently about the history of conservatism, and he's written some essays, too. And one of the points he makes is that conservatism looks different wherever you find it, because it's about reaching to the past and to tradition of a particular place and of a particular culture. And those cultures are different. And so he's written an essay where he says, like, it doesn't really matter which one you choose, but you ought to commit to some belief system mm-hmm. and try to live according to its precepts and and that's that's what I'm calling ecumenical conservatism it's a kind of cosmopolitan conservatism which is basically to say like I'm not saying that Christianity is better than Buddhism or Judaism or Islam I'm saying that those ancient systems of beliefs have some wisdom and you should probably pick one and and do your best to live up to it. And I think that I think Stevenson is kind of making a similar argument throughout this book and I think you see that in Godot Dango's conversion. You certainly see it when Randy's visiting his old like uh you know California friends and the only ones who are nice to him are the Christians. Um yeah. And um, I think you see it with Mary Smith or Scamithid. Um And I, I also think you see it in the Diamond Age a little bit, too, with the Neo-Victorians and um, uh, Chun-Suk Finkley McGraw's sort of meditations on uh, uh, relativism. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that was also, that was sort of maybe part of what I saw in that Godot Dango scene was that maybe for Stevenson, for Godot Dango to transform... For him to abandon the Japanese ideology, something has to replace that. And mm-hmm. that's why he has him convert to Christianity. Uh, it, it wouldn't have to be Christianity. It could be Buddhism. It could be something else. But he happens to have mentioned Christianity in that moment. And Bobby Shafto's there and Douglas Soak's Christianity it is. Well, and, and also uh, there's a, a real strong theme in all of Stevenson, in a lot of Stevenson stuff that we've read. Um, and this is, uh, this is all just a way for me to click the hackers equals gods. Hackers equal gods. Ah. Um, I'm eventually going to get to a bingo. <laughs> Still haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, you know, Randy kind of, by sticking to a code and the other hackers, like, also display the same kind of things. Like, there, there's a certain way that you have to do the stuff that they do and to live by it, and you can't help but be affected by that way of thinking. Hmm. Um, And I could see that Stevenson is making the same point about hackers. Like, it is an old way of thinking, because we've seen, and Enki gets brought up again in this book. Um, All sorts of gods get get brought up. And that that really sort of interesting section about who the gods are. Yeah. Yeah, Athena, and that wisdom, is really the the biggest thing that you should be aiming for. Yeah, um, and at one point Enoch Root says, "Why did we why did we defeat the Germans and the Japanese? Because they worshipped Ares and America and the allies worshipped Athena." And that's, you know, I think that's one of the moments of the book that does hold together well because it's 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 not stuffed in your face. It's not used as a plot device. Um and it is, you know, like brooding behind everything is a veneration of information. 
Yeah. And that's that that's what you get with with Stevenson. Like information is everything. Um, and the way that information moves from noise to form, I think is one of the things that is he's most interested in. And for sure, like religion is is one of those ways that humans take noise and transform it into meaning. The most religious character is Enoch Root. And Enoch Root swears and has sex against the rules, fornicates. Fornicates. And he is a non-literalist in his religion, too. Like, you know, when he talks about Athena, he says, well, I don't really think there was this woman, you know, with a helmet who, you know, had these magical powers, but I think you have these these gods represent ideas, and they keep coming up over and over again. So when people are reaching for the gods to describe something, they're reaching for something that they understand about their world. And that's a very anthropological understanding of, of mythology, uh, too. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we said this when we talked about Snow Crash, that Stevenson's not necessarily trying to be a literary writer. He's trying to play around with ideas. You know, you talked about not liking the wisdom tooth uh, diversion. I talked about, you know, I don't need the Germans in the submarine. We already talked about that. I loved the Enoch Root Randy chapters where they're just talking about stuff. Mm-hmm. Part of what's going on, too, is that while they're having that conversation, they're also exchanging messages in the solitaire code. I forget what it's called. A real code that's... Which, which some friend of Stevenson's, like, developed for this book. It's in an appendix, too, and... That's I'm there for that. You know, I'm there for Stevenson's yeah. ideas. I don't know that I always agree with them. I think he is his commitment to a certain kind of ecumenical conservatism. I don't necessarily totally agree with it, but I'm happy to engage with it intellectually. Yeah. I'm happy to think about totally. it and play it around. Okay, so there's another moment in the book that I found really really interesting. And again, I wanted to ask you if you bought this. And so it's this moment where Randy and Avi in the present, like roughly 1998 or something like that, meet Goto-sama, which is the term of respect for Goto-dango, who's now an old man and the head of a corporation. And he is very intelligent. He knows about role-playing games, and they were kind of embarrassed that they met playing role-playing games, but Goto-dango is able to suggest that that they're actually very ahead of the curve and wise people to have engaged in role-playing games. And, you know, this is somebody for whom the idea of reenacting action probably seems ridiculous given the experiences he had in World War II, you know, these terrible, horrific, harrowing experiences. Um, so he's charming, he's thoughtful. It seems, though, that his company is reluctant to want to help them, you know, dig up this gold. Um, and then he and Randy kind of play this game where they exchange a piece of paper with the last little bit of the geographical coordinates, and they realize, oh, my God, how is this possible? This guy knows exactly where the gold is. How is that possible? And they, through a little bit of conversation, they sort of figure out how it might be possible. Randy figures out, oh, Goto Dengo must have been one of the ones who buried the gold there, probably working for, you know, the, the army mm-hmm. and and Gododengo pieces together. Oh, he has like those old uh, intercepts. So so there might have been some connection there. So they figure it out. And Gododengo is is like, okay, well, 
I, I see what you want, and I see that you know what you're talking about, and I see that you're serious, but what's the point of digging up that goal? You guys are just treasure hunters, right? And then mm-hmm. it's Avi who gets angry at that moment and stands up and basically says, you buried my uncle and aunt's teeth. Mm. Um, and I want to dig up that gold and use it to make sure the Shoah never happens again, make sure the Holocaust never happens again. And Goto Dango is moved by this and stands up and bows to Avi, acknowledging the tragedy of the Holocaust in that moment and then basically agreeing to throw in his lot with them. And I was very moved by that. But I afterwards, I was like, did Stevenson just you play a dirty trick on me? Did he just, like, <laughs> use the Holocaust to make me, like, really moved by that moment? Because, like, yes, what Avi is talking about is profound and horrific. But does that really have anything to do with digging up the gold? You know, and, and also, is that really why Avi and Ra- It seems to me like Avi and Randy are just having an adventure and trying to get rich. Yes, I know that Avi says he's going to use it to make this, like, you know, anarchist cookbook resistance manual, which seems... The heap. Like, the heap. The Holocaust resistance manual or whatever it's called. So, I don't know. So, I guess, like, I, I just... There was some part of me that's like, wait, was that just a little bit of a trick there? Did, did Stevenson just conjure the stakes of that moment by bringing the Holocaust in it? Or was there something real there? Um, I'm curious how that passage worked I think- for you. I think there is, and I think it, I think it, I think it does work, and I think I believed it because Stevenson does enough earlier legwork in expressing the relationship between Avi and his wife Devora mm. and his and his children, um, which does see. There's this great moment when they're in the airport, and like Randy is sort of like trying to help Avi's Avi's wife. And she's kind of long suffering and, you know, Avi says like, well, I'm sorry, you're being uprooted. You're being taken away from your home. And she's like, Randy, we're going to Israel. Like we are going home Mm. and there's enough work done, um, to kind of evince Avi's character. And yeah, like I think Stevenson does a good job with him because he is complicated. Like Avi is sort of a freewheeling businessman, but he is also part of this kind of conspiracy theorist, um, libertarian uh, kind of guy that it feels right to me. Like there's enough of a of an originating incident to make to make me believe that moment. And do you um, think that Godo Dengo would have believed it? That. Avi simply sort of saying, look, like, you know, I lost family members and you buried their teeth or you buried the gold from their teeth in that, that that would be enough to convince Gododengo, who's very skeptical of treasure hunting. <laughs> and, you know, when Root said, hey, maybe you should give that gold to the church, Gododengo was skeptical. His theory is we should just leave it in the ground, you know. Right. Yeah. He says that the gold is a corpse. Right. Um, in one of the, uh, another nice, another really nice section. Um, and I think he is convinced by, you know, Avi saying, yes, it is a corpse. Um, but like more can, more can be done to prevent future corpses with it. If we just leave it in the ground, it is a monument, which is also important. Um, 
and it kind of lets the past be past, but we're kind of giving up if we don't try. Um, so I, I believe it. I, I do think Stevenson is, I think this is a, this is a moment where he, he's done a good thing from a literary perspective and made a complicated character that we are ambivalent about. But for me, at least I, of, I, I do come down on the side of believing that Avi isn't, it isn't a trick. Mm. Like at least I, I think Avi wholeheartedly believes it. And I think Stevenson believes his character too. Hmm. I guess maybe what I'm grappling with is that I think you're right that Stevenson believes his character too. I'm trying to like grapple with the idea, like could such a person exist? Um, you, you know, hmm. that somebody who's so skeptical of institutions and is so enamored with kind of what I think of as kind of like tech bro fantasy um, could also really be motivated by something as noble as trying to make sure genocide doesn't happen again. And that's why he's doing all these kind of like tech bro business things. Um, I, th I think, yeah, because like, you know, I mean, like genocides, generally are are um prosecuted by um by governments that's mm. true like that is that is that is yeah that's that's usually it, it takes it takes a lot <laughs> it takes a lot of resources to to do to do a genocide and and generally i mean there is another problem on the flip side of of basically tech tech bro hubris right um, that we're getting to see a real life unfolding every day in the news uh, recently. Um, but, um, you know, and, and this idea of this sort of technocratic idea that that, yeah, we can kind of fix everything with uh, the powers of the market and the powers of um, unfettered, like completely unfettered free speech, um, that are also problematic and can lead to really bad outcomes in their own right. Um, but I, I believe that there is a person like this mm. that is that is that is sort of like a tech bro crusader, um, which is kind of what uh, the role Avi plays. And you believe that somebody as wise and thoughtful as Goto Dengo would not see him as just kind of a little bit of a fantasist. Even I mean, I, I, th I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. I think I, I think you've convinced me that, yeah, I could imagine somebody like that who is sincere and and for very specific reasons doesn't trust governments because you're right. Genocide is perpetuated by governments. I don't know. To me, it does seem a little bit uh, Alvi's plans to prevent another Holocaust seem silly to me. Yes, I, I think the I think that part of the plotting strikes me as, as sort of a little ham handed. Where I'm like, uh, you know, and I mean, there's stuff that Stevenson got wrong in this book. Like we don't, you don't need a bunch of gold to make a, to make a currency. Nope. Um, well maybe, maybe you do actually, now that we're seeing what's happening to, to, uh, to, but I do think cryptocurrencies are probably here to stay in some form or another. You don't need, um, I mean, dollars are no longer attached. No longer to gold, gold standard. Gold standard. Yeah. None of the major currencies are. I suppose they once were. All you need to make a currency is enough people to believe that it's a currency. It's faith. Uh, yeah. Right. And, um, and yeah. gold is a good way of getting there, uh, like yeah. securing it with gold, but that's not the only way to get there. And well, I, I think, think and just to get back, I do remember, I don't know where it was in the book, 
but Godo does say at some point he never wants this to happen again. And it's not in that scene with Randy and Avi. I'm not sure where it is. Yeah. But I just I, I remember that going past. And, and I think that's why that pays off is that it is it is a meeting of kindred spirits about hoping to avert future genocides and and bloodshed. There is another moment where Randy says to Godo Dango, oh, I think Wing knows where it is. So it's either us or Wing. And Godo mm-hmm. Dango says, well, it's us then. And and so I guess in that sense, it, it's not like Godo Dango would need to necessarily think that Randy and Avi's idea of what they're going to do with the gold makes sense. He just needs to know that these are good-hearted people um, who, who, who understand the gravity of the gold. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, let's let's close with a couple readings. Um, this is on uh, in my edition, page eight seven two. We are in a chapter called "Return." Of course, it's another section where I think the writing is great. Um, we return to Stevenson's obsession with biomass, also his obsession with math uh, embodied in the world. Maths embodied, and just this kind of magical way that that the the biomass of the world is is transformed into beautiful things. The place is filled with plants that in America are seen only in pots, but that grow to the size of oak trees here, so big that Randy's mind can't recognize them as, for example, the same kind of Diefenbachia that Grandmother Waterhouse used to have growing on the counter in her downstairs bathroom. There is an incredible variety of butterflies for whom the wind-free environment seems to be congenial, and they weave in and out among huge spider webs that call to mind the design of Enoch Root's chapel. But it is clear that the place is ultimately ruled by ants. In fact, it makes the most sense to think of the jungle as a living tissue of ants with minor infestations of trees, birds, and humans. Some of them are so small that they are to other ants as those ants are to people. They prosecute their ant activities in the same physical space, but without interfering, like many signals on different frequencies sharing the same medium. But there are a fair number of ants carrying other ants, and Randy assumed that they are not doing it for altruistic reasons. Like, what I, what I love about Stevenson... Um, is that it is a freewheeling place where beautiful and strange um, things happen and there's amazing ideas um, and it constantly acknowledges that the world is a very, very complicated and complex place. But that the thing that we have to remember is at the end of it, there is no shortage of beings that are willing to do harm to other beings. And that is, that is where I feel like Stevenson, I enjoy him the most. You know, it's a, it's like a backyard game of football played in a not very safe environment. And, and that's okay. Like, yeah, you know, like we're going to set up the end zones over here, but um, my grandfather's like harrow, like like harvester is back there. So like just be careful if you don't don't like throw it super deep, um, you know, like that. That feels to me like a quintessential Stevenson construction yeah. um, 
that the world is fun and complicated and very dangerous. It's it's a moment of rest, even though they're kind of walking through the jungle right now. But it's kind of interesting with Randy in this moment, because Randy, we're in Randy's point of view. And you have this sense that on the one hand, he really wants to find the gold and he doesn't want Wing to get it. And, you know, Abby's having passport problems and like he could get arrested and thrown into a jail. He's been banned from the Philippines for life and he went back. All of that's happening. But also we seem to be at a moment in the book where Randy is very comfortable with the decision he's made. And, and mm-hmm. so it's a moment of rest, too. So you also have the sense of a character just sort of observing everything that's going around. And it really does remind me of the passage you read from Snow Crash with Hero up in the Hollywood Hills, you know, oh, yeah. gazing down at the biomass, just sort of wondering at it all. And again, we know that what Hero's gazing down is sometimes violent and people shooting at each other and, and deliberators and, and thrashers and mafia people. But from up, but there's, there's this sense of sort of zooming out and sort of seeing the grandeur and the wonder of it too. Well, Chris Bag, would you, will you read Cryptonomicon again before you die? No. <laughs> I've read it twice now. I've, I've read it back. I appreciate it more this time than last time. Um, but there it's flaws are such that I don't want to paw through them in order to get to the, to the good stuff, um, which I think is here, but, um, it's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work, uh, that I don't have the time for. And I'm frustrated enough by the other elements of going on too long. Um, some of the ethnic determinism, does that get me my bingo? Is that now that I say, oh, nope, nope. Um, um, I, I did bring up inexplicable time the, shifts. The inexplicable time shifts. There. Inexplicable time shifts. By clicking inexplicable time shifts, I just got a Yahtzee. <laughs> I got three bingos all at once. Um, but you beat me like an hour ago. Yeah. Jesse, will you read this book again before you die? I don't think so. Um, if I did, it would be like, in 30 years on a beach vacation where I really just want to be entertained and not think. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like maybe if I'm in, like if I'm really burned out and, I, and, I, and I've forgotten most of the book and this were on the shelf, I'd be like, oh, that old chestnut. Maybe I'll pick <laughs> that book up. I know it will at least be enjoyable, but I kind of doubt it. Um, and that's the only scenario in which I could, I could imagine that happening. Um, but I think I think there's even just better stuff in the Stevenson canon. Yeah. I will read Snow Crash again. I think. Yeah. Yeah, but me I'm too. I'm I am hedging a little bit because I could imagine that scenario of yeah. being in a beach house somewhere, age like seventy, and that this that being like one of several books on the shelves that also have like Lonesome Dove and some Mishner novels, and just being like, eh, I don't want to read Mishner. <laughs> I guess I'll read. It's been a while since I read Cryptonomicon, and then start reading that first. I don't even remember how the book begins. Um, uh, Bobby Shafto oh, haiku. Oh yeah, yeah, no, and then start reading the Bobby Shafto haiku and be like, oh yeah, this is good, because yeah. that is a, it is a pretty good first chapter. It's a good, it's a good opener. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a strong, it's a good strong start. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely motivated to read some more recent Stevenson after what you've talked about. I, I, I think I kind of put him on a shelf after I read this, probably twenty years ago now, 
And, uh, and, but yeah, I want to read some of the more recent stuff, not the Baroque cycle. Cause I think I read the first page of it once and was like, Oh God, I can't do well, it. Well, I would, I would love to discuss those with you if we want to put it into a draft at some point. Although I would also like a break from Stevenson. Next year, 2024, <laughs> 2024 is the earliest I will consider doing more Stevenson after doing seven episodes of Stevenson. El año proximo con Stevenson. <laughs> yeah. Um, we gotta, uh, yeah, tell us, tell our listeners about our uh, trivia segment. Okay, so we decided, and and this is this is we're still evolving this since this is the final Stevenson. We're trying a new segment, which is where we ask you, the listener, a question, um, and um, yeah, we, we don't really have a prize right now. We'll put you on the merch list, but the first person to email hello at uppermiddlebrow.com with a acceptable answer, we will acknowledge your victory. Uh, somehow or another it's tricky because you know when we do when you and i do trivia we can't google it we can't we can't necessarily look up so it has to be something has to be an open book test you know and so what i came up with um it's about enoch root enoch root appears or a character with that name appears in at least five stevenson novels that i'm aware of um, in a time periods that span like the late 1600s to the late 21st century. It's not clear whether it's the same character or not, although there are hints that he is, in fact, a very long-lived person, the same character. Um, there are hints that he possesses supernatural qualities, and even if you sort of read the way that he's described in the 90s, it does seem like he did not age as much as you would expect somebody to age in 50 years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there are theories on the internet about Enoch Root, um, that he might not be of this world, that he might be an alien, maybe, or there's even a theory that he might be a robot. And I have a hypothesis. I suspect that Stevenson does not have one particular idea about Enoch Root. I think he deploys Enoch Root differently. Uh, in the different mm-hmm. books. Um, but I have a hypothesis that his character is at least partially inspired by the Norse god Odin. And I have observed at least four clues that support that hypothesis. So the first listener who can send an email with three plausible clues, mm. and they don't have to be nice. mine. If you come up with other clues that I missed uh, that are plausible for why Enoch Root might be inspired by the Norse god Odin, uh, you will you will win our prize, which is nothing. <laughs> I love it. That's a good one. So, listeners, we are departing the shores of Neil Stevenson, uh, maybe to return at some point in the future. Um, but uh, next up, we are going to be reading and talking about uh, Jennifer Egan's 2010 novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which is one of my personal favorite books in the entire world. And um, we'll be doing that for two episodes. Um, and we are beginning the next series that we're doing, uh, which is uh, called The Future Sucks, in which we'll do Jennifer Egan's book. We'll also do Jonathan Lethem's recent novel, The Arrest. Yes. And Andy Weir's wonderful novel, uh, Project Hail oh. Mary. So that is what's coming up in the next uh, six episodes of Upper Middle Brow. Thank you all so much for listening. We'd love for you to uh, leave a rating and review in whatever app that you use. Uh, we will read it. 
and if you don't want us to read it, um, that's fine. We won't read your review if you don't want us to read it, of course. I always assume that people enjoy attention, but not everybody likes attention, too. So you can always leave an anonymous review, too. Um, Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the mining engineers, the cryptologists, and the treasure hunters. <laughs> Music is from Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Graphic design and website by Chris Bag, and you can learn more about us at that lovely website that Chris created, UppermiddleBrow.com. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Dukes here, coming from Cape Canaveral, Florida, in February, and it is glorious. I hope there's some beauty wherever you are. That concludes our mini early Neil Stevenson series. Thank you for sticking it out. I know the last few episodes were a bit on the long side, but we thought they were interesting, fascinating conversations. We definitely discovered and learned, and we hope you did too. And I want to tell you about a podcast that I was recently lucky to be invited to join. It's called Finding Favorites. It's hosted by Leah Jones. Uh, Every week or so, somebody talks with Leah about something they really, really like. Uh, It could be a film, could be a book, could be an activity, could be an idea. Uh, A couple of recent episodes that I really enjoyed, uh, the documentary filmmaker Liz Nord shared some of her favorite film documentaries. Robert Lorizel, who's a journalist and a friend, and uh, one of the early listeners to this podcast, talked about his love of the Stanley Kubrick film 2001 Space Odyssey. And in the most recent episode, you'll hear me, Jesse Dukes, talking about two movies I love from 1973 and 1974, The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers, directed by Richard Lester. So check that out. You can find Finding Favorites wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Hopefully like this one. Coming up, Next, as we said before, is Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad. That's coming up in about 10 days or so, so check that out. Give it a read, read the first half, and join Chris and I next time on Upper Middle Brown. Thank you so much for listening.